but I also want people to acknowledge that there are immense problems with our system. Um, and, you know, if you look at America with large in terms of the number of people we incarcerate, the type of people we incarcerate, the length of sentences, they're widely out of whack in terms of how the rest of the world treats the exact same sort of conduct. One which is uh, south of Mount Rainier in the Gifford Pinchot National Forest and, I, and north of White Pass. Another is Chief Joseph Summer Trail, which is in southeastern Washington. Uh, the Nez Pierce Trail, very remote area. You grew up in Manhattan. Was the privilege a good or bad thing for you? Well, I mean, privilege is a privilege, obviously. Um, you know, it afforded me an excellent education. It afforded me opportunities that the unprivileged do not get to have. That's Nick Brown, Judy Bentley, and Erica Schickel. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. Now, we are entering the second in a trilogy of festivities with this Thanksgiving weekend. Now, that is if you include Halloween in that lineup. It appears that COVID is spiking again, so be very careful with your gatherings over the weekend and into the Christmas season. Today, we have a great lineup of guests on very diverse topics. Nick Brown was recently appointed U.S. Attorney for Western Washington. He was sworn into office in early October. Mr. Brown, age 44, is one of the youngest top federal prosecutors ever appointed to this position. Author, hiker, and historian Judy Bentley will be with us to talk about hiking in Washington State. She is past president and current member of the Southwest Historical Society. We're going to talk about her second edition of her book, Walking Guides in Washington State. Erica Schickel a very fascinating person who really tells it like it is. She has written a memoir that demonstrates a very complex portrait of a woman who blows up her marriage and life for the twisted love. Kind of sounds like a novel, doesn't it? But this is real life. I left Martin Stadium last Friday in Pullman, very pleased with a solid win over Arizona in the fog and the snow. The Cougars were bowl eligible. Now, I didn't even consider that WSU could be in the Pac-12 Northern Division race. But because of Utah's lopsided win over Oregon, that possibility is very real. If the Cougars can finally prevail against the Huskies, and if Oregon State beats Oregon, the Cougars win the Northern Division and will play for the Pac-12 championship. Now, who would have guessed that a team that was rocked by a coach who chose not to follow the rules and was fired four weeks ago, would go on to position themselves and have a shot at a division title. Sometimes I wonder why I and so many others care so much about a group of guys crashing into each other four or five hours over the weekend. Clearly, this is one of the reasons why the improbable becomes probable. And finally, for my introduction, One Hit Wonders for today, the criteria for the songs that I play is that a band or a solo artist produces a big hit and then fades about as fast as they came onto the scene. So, today's one-hit wonder, the song's lyrics, next plane to blank, next plane to what city? Back with my interview with Mr. Nick Brown in just a moment. 
When a flock of geese knocked out two engines on U.S. Airways Flight 1549 right after takeoff from LaGuardia Airport, who would you want in the cockpit? Captain Sully or a pilot on their maiden flight? If Captain Sully was your choice, then experience is important to you. And that's what Voices of Experience with Paul Casey is all about. People with experience in their chosen fields. A variety of topics are explored, including local and national public affairs, self-employment, travel, lifestyles, health and fitness, history, and adventure. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. Voices of Experience is simulcast on AM 880 KIXI and 1150 AM KKNW on Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Voices of Experience is also rebroadcast on Kixie Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. U.S. Attorney for Western Washington was sworn into office in early October. Mr. Brown, age 44, is one of the youngest top federal prosecutors to be appointed ever in Western Washington and the first African-American to hold such a position. He was nominated by President Joe Biden and then confirmed by the Senate. He strongly believes racial and social inequities have been fed by a sort of inertia where law enforcement and line prosecutors do what they do because that's the way it's always been done in the past. As counsel to Governor Jay Inslee, Nick Brown played a key role in the governor's decision to place a moratorium on the death penalty in Washington in 2014. Let's pick up with my interview with Nick. We were talking about unintended consequences of mass incarcerations. And one of your big issues I read in the Seattle Times interview you had about uh, mass incarcerations, I guess, not only in this state, but across the country. But now that you are uh, in your position now, you want to really take that on. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, in terms of priorities, I think about it in a few different ways. I mean, one, we are part of the Department of Justice. You know, every administration has a particular focus or emphasis or policies that impact the work that all of the 93 U.S. attorneys' offices in the country work on. Uh, so certainly we take a lot of guidance from them. Um, you know, then just being here and knowing these communities and our folks working with both community folks and law enforcement offices in this in this state or in this district, you know, we're more uniquely attuned to the issues that are affecting um, Western Washington specifically, um, and those are different in large part from some of the issues faced in different jurisdictions. But overall, arching that, you know, I definitely want our um, line attorneys to be thinking more broadly about, you know, what does it mean to have a just sentence and what sort of punishment is appropriate in every case. And they have been thinking about that. I know how hard and how um, deliberative people are here, having worked here previously. But I do think that, you know, over the last 10 years or so, we have just seen renewed attention around the larger systemic issues facing um, American justice system. And, you know, I certainly feel like there is immense good being done by prosecutors, by law enforcement in terms of the day-to-day work that we do. But I also want people to acknowledge that there are immense problems with our system. Um, And, you know, if you look at America writ large in terms of the number of people we incarcerate, the type of people we incarcerate, the length of sentences, they're widely out of whack 
in terms of how the rest of the world treats the exact same sort of conduct. Um, and, you know, every country obviously is different, has its unique issues and culture. But my sort of core feeling is that we could approach our justice um, work in a very different way and, and be more um, aware of the, the downstream effects of the work that we do. Um, Cause I don't think we want to continue a lot of our past practices that have led to mass incarceration that have led to disenfranchised communities, usually the poor underserved and minority communities. Um, and I just want us to be more aware of those issues and realizing that, we can make a difference in terms of how we approach cases and prioritize cases and work with law enforcement to try to, you know, to slow the, the tide um, of that of that trend over the last however many years in our justice system. I read uh, recently that uh, in the United States in the 1970s, we incarcerated about a half a million people. And today it's well over two million. Is that anywhere close? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know the specific stat you're citing to, but I my understanding is in the last 45 years, our prison population has, or jail and prison population, has grown by over 700 percent. 700 percent. You know, in in 1980, um, we incarcerated approximately 41,000 people for drug offenses in America. Uh, in 2019, that was 430,000. You know, the average time for a federal drug offense uh, used to be um, uh, in in the 80s about 22 months, so less than two years. By 2004, that number had leapt to 62 months in prison. Um, and we, we've seen, um, you know, following the real high-level crime rates that we had in the 80s and 90s, a real reaction to uh, relying on mandatory minimum sentences, um, you know, charging and, and prosecuting the full extent of the law and advocating for those sentences. Um, we've seen just a real reliance on those on those practices, but we haven't seen a dramatic um, uh, positive benefit in the long term in terms of crime rates. And, you know, what I want people both who work here and in the public to realize is that, you know, approximately 95 percent of people who are in prison will one day get out and they will be back into the community and we have to be thinking very deliberately about how they're going to come out, what they've been through, how long they've been through, and what is their likelihood of success when they get back in the community. And, you know, in many ways, some of the more draconian sentences we've used in the past have not made us safer. Um, they eliminate a, a part-time problem, but not a long-term solution. And I just really believe that we cannot incarcerate our way out of problems. You know, incarceration is part of the uh, tools that we have to use. Um, you know, we bring cases that where we believe prison time is appropriate and necessary and certainly support that work, but it is only part of the puzzle and, and there are more systemic um, things that we could be addressing to, to make our community safer, which is really our goal as prosecutors. I guess what you're saying is that if someone is serving in prison for 25 years, he or she is going to have a difficult time getting a job at Amazon. Well, yeah, and virtual impossibility. Exactly. Um, just, you know yeah. what I mean? It, it really is. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, how about private prisons? Do you think we should do away with those entirely? Um, you know, I, I know private prisons have become a real sort of popular area for advocates, community advocates to to focus their attention on. And I certainly get that. There's something intuitively very 
bothersome, to put it lightly, about the idea that people are profiting by locking other people up. Um, and that, you know, intuitively bothers me uh, immensely. Um, so I certainly get the focus. Uh, on the other hand, I think that the issues that people in the sort of justice reform or advocacy um, mindset, the issues that they care about translate both private and public facilities. And private facilities make up a tiny fraction of the overall um, facilities that we use to, to incarcerate people. And so I don't know, at least my sort of view is the attention that we put on private prisons as a, as a problem is not proportional to the scope of the problem. Um, and again, I, I get the reason why people are bothered by it, but I don't think it's, it's where we should be focusing all of our energy. Fair enough. Uh, you mentioned some countries that do it better, that you feel uh, handle crime and things like that better. Could you name a few and, and what they do that we don't do? Yeah, and uh, you know, I'm very mindful that just because there's different practices and different numbers in other places doesn't mean that those things translate here as easily. Um, but I, you know, I was reading a report um, just last week um, that was uh, it was it's somewhat dated now, um, but I think it was in the early 2000s. Um, there was a point in time where where Germany had. Um, I think less than a hundred people who are currently in, in prison in Germany for, um, for 15 year sentences or more. So, you know, 15 year sentences are something that state and federal prosecutors dole out in America with some consistency. Um, you know, the average drug sentence in the Netherlands was something like 18 months. Um, and so if you look at, um, certainly some of the European countries, just in terms of their prison policies, um, they do it differently. Uh, and they also do it differently for violent offenses. Um, you know, when we talk about reform, we often focus on sort of the inequities that come from our drug system, which I certainly get. Um, but if we're really going to start tackling the issues, we also have to look closely at our violent offenses as well and, and just really analyze, like, are we making our community safer by incredibly lengthy sentences? Sometimes I think the answer is yes. Sometimes absolutely people who do those offenses um, need the, a lengthy sentence to protect the community. Um, but oftentimes I don't think that they do. And certainly we're out of whack with most of most of Europe, um, frankly, many other uh, countries outside of Europe, Canada as well. Um, and it's not only in their prison policy, it's, you know, in terms of how they police, um, you know, in England, most police officers don't carry firearms um, because they don't need it. Um, here, we could not ask law enforcement to do that because so many people that they encounter and much more than they used to are carrying firearms as well. And that just increases the likelihood of violence. But I do think we sort of should look both in our, our sentencing policies as well as our policing policies and just be open to the idea that we're not doing it as well as we could be and then try to adopt programs from other areas that, that might work in these jurisdictions. I guess I've heard the term gun control since the 1960s. And all it's done is quadrupled and become worse than ever than it ever had even been back then. That it's almost trite when you say handgun control. That was the big rallying cry then. Nothing right. like we have now with assault weapons. And I just don't see any way we're ever going to come to grips with this issue. It just continues to, the 
get kicked down the road and nothing's ever going to happen. Um, do I have a solid foundation to be so cynical? Or do you think that maybe at some point we're going to finally come to grips with this madness of guns in this country? Um, well, you know, I, I need to avoid sort of the larger political conversation around that because it's not my role and our policymakers will set the right policies around community safety, firearm access, and those things. What I will tell you that as a prosecutor, um, both previously as a line prosecutor and now as the U.S. attorney for this district, that gun violence uh, really plagues our communities, that we are seeing guns in more hands and more situations than ever before. You know, it used to be that if you did a drug bust that you, you might a company, you know, find a firearm every now and then, um, you know, we focusing on these trafficking cases would come across firearm seizures uh, as part of our, our drug arrest, um, you know, with, with some inconsistency. Today, they find firearms in almost every stop, in almost every arrest. And, um, you know, those are being trafficked, trafficked and and spread across our communities, um, which makes the communities unsafe, which makes law enforcement's job much more difficult because they never know who they're going to encounter might be armed. Um, and so the scope of the problem is acute. It is very, very serious. And unless something changes, as you know, that's only going to get worse. Um, you know, I certainly think that there are different ways we could approach it from a policy perspective. But um, again, I'm not a policymaker, and I, I hope that our the folks who have those positions are just aware of the scope of the problem so they can devise the right solutions for them. Well, I'm going to save uh, – that's fair enough, of course, and in your position. I really respect that. Uh, but the toughest question I'm saving for last, and that is your experience on Survivor 20-some-odd years ago, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a pretty uh, amazing. I didn't even know it was on that long, but uh, apparently you were a big star on that. Uh, well, I don't know about that. Um, I was on the second season, which, um, you know, the first season was kind of this um, water cooler show that was aired in the summer because nobody in the network thought people would watch it and became this big, huge hit. And so the second season that I was on um, was really unique in terms of the timing and, and the awareness of it. And it was really the, the dawn of the reality TV era, for better or for worse. And um, so I think my season as a whole remains the most watched Survivor season, and now they're on 41. Um, but I, you know, I kept kind of a low profile intentionally, and um, I never wanted to be Survivor to be the most important thing that I did. Um, and I was in law school at the time and dropped out first semester to go do that and had a wonderful, wonderful experience. Um, and now it's 21 years ago, and my kids like watching the old videos of Dad doing that back when I was young and had earrings and doing something fun. Um, but yeah, it's, it was a great experience. But 21 years ago, lots of time has passed since then. That's Nick Brown, U.S. Attorney for Western Washington. Some of the information contained in my interview with Mr. Brown came from an article published by the Seattle Times. Judy Bentley has joined us, and she is an author, hiker, and historian. She has written 19 books, including Hiking and Walking Guides to Washington State, 
which we're going to talk about today. She's also written biographies, a collection of World War II letters, and books for young adults on contemporary issues. Some of those books include biographies of Sandra Day O'Connor, Desmond Tutu, Fidel Castro, and Harriet Tubman, and the primary target for these books are younger adults. Again, today we're going to primarily focus on her second edition of Hiking Washington's History, co-authored with guidebook author Craig Romano. This hiking book was published in 2021, and there are 12 new hikes, updates, and more detailed trail information that are contained in this book. How did you get interested in hiking yourself? What brought that on? Was it somebody who influenced you early in life, your mother, your father, or somebody? (laughs) Well, probably my husband. Um, I grew up in Indiana. Uh, We didn't have a lot of uh, hiking and certainly didn't have mountains and ocean, Um, but I did enjoy going to state parks there. Um, Then I lived in New York City for about 13 years, and uh, my husband and I would hike the Appalachian Trail. I guess our first, uh, our first real, my first real experience of, of serious hiking was on our honeymoon trip across the country. We went to uh, Glacier National Park and did a five-day backpack, which was the first time I'd ever had a backpack on my back. And we had new boots and new sleeping bags, no tent, <laughs> and, but it was a, a great hike for five days, and that got me really into hiking. So it kind of hooked you then. Here, it hooked me then, right? Then when we moved out here, that was one reason for moving uh, out here was to be closer to outdoors and, and hiking. So, Do you remember your first trail that you hiked? There were several um, that people recommended. They said you have to go to Cascade Pass, you have to go to Evie's Landing. Um, but the one that got me into history hiking was the Coal Creek Trail, which was close to our house in Bellevue. So I could walk out the door, uh, follow uh, a deer trail, really, and then it became a social trail that people had just made a path. And then it kind of got into wetlands, but I could connect to Coal Creek and find a trail along the creek there. And that was my first kind of history hike in the sense of uh, discovering the history underneath the the trail along Coal Creek, which, as you can guess from its name, it's a, a very strong uh, coal mining history. Oh, yeah. As a matter of fact, as a kid, I grew up in Newport Hills, and we uh-huh. used to hike the Coal Creek tr- um, Creek all the time. And oh, sure. we'd ride sure. our bikes up to the uh, mines, and it was, like, really spooky, and but it was fun. It's just a great <laughs> memory. Yes. And, uh, I mean, you find things along the way, too. I mean, you find the coal, you find a whole big black hole in the ground, and you find unnatural um, mounds uh, that are tailings from the mine, and you find the site of a locomotive turntable. I mean, it's really incredible to me to be living in the suburbs and um, and walk out the door and find, you know, history from 100 years ago that was not so romantic, not so comfortable by any means. You've written a couple of books on hiking trails in Washington State. I think one was 2010, and you have one out now. Why don't we first start with the first edition and then go to the second edition? The first edition started with Coal Creek uh, for an idea. I also read a lot of Harvey Manning, um, and he described, his in one of his guidebooks, he described the Natchez Pass Trail, 
through the Cascades, a, a wagon trail in the 1850s, and that was fascinating. Um, so I started looking for hikes that I thought had a little bit more history. I was teaching at the time. I taught at South Seattle College um, for many years, and so I was only hiking in the summers, and it took me a while, but uh, gradually I began to put together a collection of historic hikes, which University of Washington Press uh, published then in 2010. They were uh, willing to take a, a, a gamble kind of on a combination, more popular history and uh, guidebook, something they had not done before. But What's the title of the, the book edition. then? Yeah, what was, what was the, the title first, of that one? The first edition is, is just called Hiking Washington's History. And how and many uh, trails are in, uh, various hikes are in that first edition? In that first edition, about uh, 40. I'm okay. Checking. Yeah, a little bit more than 40. Let me see. 42. 42 in that. Okay. Right. So then you decided to just recently put a second edition out. Why did you feel necessary to do that? Are the new hikes in here or you just updated what you had? I. It is curious. I, I thought that there would never be a second edition in the sense that historic trails, by their definition, don't change that much, but um, they do change, and the access to them changes, and I discovered some new ones. I also wanted to make it um, ha- include more trail descriptions so that uh, it could be more of a guidebook, and so that's why I uh, invited uh, Craig Romano to to co-author the book, and he has provided uh, more detailed uh, trail descriptions for the second edition of the book. There are 12 new hikes in this book, um, and it, it was uh, surprising to uh, find that there are there, uh, there are many trails that I that I had still to be discovered. There are trails that are hard to find, too, so I was always looking, of course, for trails that uh, are well-maintained that people can follow. Okay, so if you um, access issues is being able to get to the trailhead as easy as possible, but then accessibility, let's put it that way, let's say older people or people with um, some challenges physically that they can maneuver through the trail better? Well, by I meant more access. Uh, There's a variety of trails in the second edition. Some are short and easy and most people can do. Um, some of them are multi-day backpacks, so they range a great deal. But at least they are ones that you can get to the trailhead for. Um, okay. Because of the removal of the dams on the Awa, for example, has made access to the Dodger Point Trail very difficult. So I did not include that in the second edition. Okay. What are your favorite hikes? <laughs> I mean, there's probably a lot. We could be here an hour and a half, I'm sure, but maybe two right. or three. One is Callis Pass, um, one is, which is uh, south of Mount Rainier in the Gifford Pinchot National Forest and, I, and north of White Pass. Another is Chief Joseph Summer Trail, which is in southeastern Washington, uh, the Nez Pierce Trail, very remote area. Is that in the Palouse area? And, yes. Uh, it's in the very southeastern corner. It's in the uh, Wenaha Tucannon Wilderness and in the Blue Mountains that also extend into eastern Oregon there. So it's right on the border with Idaho um, and Oregon in that corner. 
What do you think would be the best type of hikes that people can take that, again, takes that into consideration? I know we got western Washington and eastern Washington. We have the mountains and are entirely different climates. But would you have mm-hmm. a couple that you'd recommend that people should consider if they need to get out? One that is new in the second edition is the Snoqualmie Valley Trail. It goes for 31 miles, and you can choose <laughs> small parts of that. And It's a railroad-grade trail. It's on... Um, the bed of the Seattle Lakeshore and Eastern Railway goes along the Snoqualmie River. This was the ancient uh, waterway for the Snoqualmie people. Um, a lot of steamboat travel up the river. So the trail roughly follows the river, although the river is winding and the trail is straight. And you can pick this up. It goes from Deval all the way to uh, Rattlesnake Lake. Um, there are parks uh, along the way. Meadowbrook Farm is accessible. Of course, it goes uh, near Snoqualmie Falls. So you can choose. Uh, you can get on it at Tolt McDonald Park and Carnation and many other places. My thanks to Judy Bentley. If you'd like to get a copy of this book or any other book that Judy has authored, I suggest you just Google Judy Bentley, and Bentley is spelled B-E-N-T-L-E-Y, Seattle author, and it will come up. Or you can... Get her books online or uh, via Amazon. Again, that's Judy Bentley. Bentley spelled B-E-N-T-L-E-Y. And just input Seattle author. Erica Schickel is my guest, and she's the author of a book called the Big Hurt, and it's touted as an explanation, an illustration of what happened to an entire generation of women. Schickel's raw honesty makes this hard to put down, and that's according to Publishers Weekly. It's a memoir by Erica Schickel and a complex portrait of a woman who blows up her marriage and life for the twisted love of an infamous crime novelist. Now, this sounds like a novel in and of itself, doesn't it? Erica is the daughter of film critic Richard Schickel. She grew up fast and unsupervised in the 1970s in New York City. As I look at the book, it almost reads like fiction, that this is something that is a little bit unbelievable in some ways. Then you go back and say, wow, this is her life. What an adventure, what the ups and downs and things. So what prompted you to write? Well, I wanted desperately uh, all my life to tell the story of what happened to me in high school. Not that I understood it when I started writing it. I initially thought this was going to be a a humor book (laughs) Um, because I hadn't examined what happened, which was that um, I was sent to a bohemian boarding school in 78. And then by in the spring of my senior year, I was seduced by a teacher at that school and expelled. And I carried that story as an anecdote because I didn't understand it. And then when I began to write it and really confront the painful, the hurt inside of that story, the story began to change and I began to change around it. And as for writing it as fiction, I am a writer who believes that the, that I, who wants to bring the reader into the direct physical experience that I had. And that's the best way I knew of doing it. What happened to the teacher? I mean, this is a day and age, I think the exact opposite would happen. 
Well, yeah. I mean, back then, when all of this happened in 1982, there was no internet and there was no conversation around um, sexual abuse and teacher-student abuse and all of that. It was, in fact, very much a sort of taken-for-granted part of the social landscape. There were many predatory relationships being modeled, not only at the school I was at, but in, in society at large. Interesting, because I grew up at that time coming of age as well, and I really didn't know that that was happening. Because you weren't a girl, maybe. It wasn't that there wasn't a move, uh, women's movement going on then, because there certainly was a very strong movement going on during the 60s and 70s, but I thought there was a lot more mm-hmm. awareness about that, and that sort of behavior wouldn't be acceptable. I guess, but I was naive. Remember, we were still being parented. You know, I am a late boomer. I was born in 64. So I'm sort of that saddle year between boomers and Gen X. And I have to say that my experience was more Gen X than boomer, um, having been raised by boomer parents and a mother for whom the sexual liberation was a new thing. And feminism, it was only in its second wave at that time. So I think the conversation around this subject, which has now come to be called the hashtag Me Too, it, it was just so nascent at that point. It was so young and nobody nobody was really aware of the term terminology around it. And that's part of what I'm trying to do in this book is to draw that experience out into the light of what it was like for girls in a sort of predatory patriarchal co- culture to grow up and form an identity based on the labels that that culture has assigned to them. For instance, as a child, I was labeled jailbait before I even reached puberty. And then I was, I've been everything from the other woman to the femme fatale and a bad girl. And all of these things have trailed me in my life. And I really wanted to uh, set the record straight by explaining it and illustrating it as vividly as I possibly could. You grew up in Manhattan. Was the privilege a good or bad thing for you? Well, I mean, privilege is a privilege, obviously. Um, You know, it afforded me an excellent education. It afforded me opportunities that the unprivileged do not get to have. And that is white privilege, that is cultural privilege, um, but it does not protect you from abuse, you know, and, that, and, and one of the reasons why I really wanted to tell this story was to show that, that you know, this happens at every strata of, of society, and particularly in places where children are left kept apart from their families and left in the care of non-family members, whether it's the Catholic Church or a scout troop, or a boarding school, there is danger inherent in that, especially in the time that I was doing it. Of course, now there's a large conversation around it, and we all have an understanding of what that is and how to prevent it. But yeah, privilege was not much help to me in that circumstance. You had an affair with a man by the name of Sam Spade, and I kind of read about his characteristics. He was kind of famous person, and, and you had a, admired him very much. And he was very much like your father, as Mm -hmm. as I read it correctly. What kind of dynamics were involved with that relationship? Well, for us, it was what psychologists would call a trauma bond. Um, He had famously had his mother murdered when he was 10. He lost his mother to a rapist and murderer. And it's a sort of legendary story in Los Angeles circles. 
I similarly lost my mother at the age of 12 or 13 um, to neglect. I mean, she gave up on me and something about me reaching puberty triggered her and turned her against me. So both of us were trying to, you know, reconnect with the love of our lost mothers. And we were had a really deep love hunger that we met in each other. And it was a, an incredibly powerful bond. The men in your life, what you feel, the maybe they had too much influence on your life, guiding, and then you had to break free of that? Or is that an over-exaggeration? Um, you know, definitely in terms of my romantic attachments, I had to, A, break free and learn to stop throwing myself at the empty spaces inside of people. And that's something that got sort of trained into me by my withholding parents, my emotionally withholding holding parents. So I have learned and I have made a better choice and I am now partnered with a very kind, sane, reasonable, supportive, loving man and very grateful to be here. But I wouldn't have gotten here without that prior relationship. I had to learn my lesson. Do you have any thoughts about, let's say, young women, girls growing up today that you look at them and go, you have no idea what it was like before? I don't feel that way, um, really. I mean, obviously, they don't know what our lived experiences are. But, you know, I, having raised two children who um, were female at birth, one is now non-binary, um, but at the time I was writing this, I had young girls who were approaching the age I was when the schism happened in my family and I was packed off to boarding school. And it really made me um, aware, it threw into sharp focus, you know, the sadness and regret I felt around my own relationship with my mother and how I needed to fix the broken parts inside of me for their sake and to make different choices as a parent than my parents made. This book took you a long time to write. Why did it take so long? Because much of it I was living as I was trying to write, and it takes a minute for you to um, understand experiences you're having. So all the part, the, the part with Sam Spade, which is sort of the middle age part of the book, that's what sort of slowed the roll on the, the whole book, because as it was happening, I understood that it was the same story that um, I was trying to write, that it was sort of the cap to this story of me trying to resolve this heartbreak. So it took 12 years, and also my parents became ill and died, and I, had a, I was in a divorce, and I had kids to raise, and many things were going on at that time. So it definitely... It took a long time. <laughs> what do you think, from your perspective, would be the big takeaways if they were to dive into this book? And what would men benefit from it and, and women, or would it be the same? Well, I mean, I, I think men and women will take different, um, different lessons from the book. I mean, overall, I wrote the book um, to be very vivid and lively and engaging. And, and that's one of the things that I worry about in these interviews, because obviously the themes of this book are, are very heavy and serious, but I am, I am light on the page, and um, I, I, I never hold any of it as being too precious. 
Um, and I think that's what both men and women respond to in the book, that they're surprised that it's a page turner of a book and relatable in ways that they didn't suspect it might be. I certainly concur with that. I haven't read the whole thing, but I've read a good part of it, and it is a page-turner. And I must say, when I decided I wanted to do this interview, I was thinking, is this going to be really too heavy? And it is really well-written, and I really enjoyed it. And we'll finish Thank it. Thank you so much. You bet. Good. I, I really appreciate that. You got it. And uh, any other books in the future, and what does your future look like? Uh, my future is back to the keyboard. Um, I am starting another book. This is my second book. Um, so I'm hoping to get at least four books out in this lifetime <laughs> on my current schedule. But, um, but yeah, I'm just back to the drawing board and working on new ideas and new stories to tell. My thanks to Erica Schickel for spending time with us today. If you'd like to find out more about her book, The Big Hurt, or just about her personally, you can visit her website, which is ericashickle.com. And that's E-R-I-K-A-Schickle, S-C-H-I-C-K-E-L.com. I know this is radio, so I'll read that one more time. It's ericashickle.com, and it's all one word, all lowercase, E-R-I-K-A-S-C-H-I-C-K-E-L.com. You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One more time, visit VoicesOfExperience.com. All one word. Today, I would like to talk about the do's and the don'ts of making presentations. Hopefully, sometime in the near future, we'll be able to interact with people again and go to speeches and and have that atmosphere that we miss so much. But this also, I believe, is good advice for Zoom presentations as well. Let me just jump right into it. Here's a do. Always ask the chair of the club that's inviting you to speak, how long do you have to speak? 30 minutes, 40 minutes, whatever the chair tells you, stick to it. Do not go one second over the allotted time, and this includes questions. Don't talk for more than 20 minutes. Your speech should not last more than 20 minutes. Let your audience take the points that you've made in the direction they want to. I mean, I know the biggest fear is that there won't be any questions. If you get into that circumstance, have a question ready for yourself. In my case, I talk about self-employment a lot. You have a question ready. I would say something like, the most frequent question that I'm asked is, what type of business should I go into? That leads me to another don't. Throw PowerPoint away for luncheon and evening audiences. And then you can't make a relationship with the audience. This is not a departmental meeting where you need to go over PowerPoint, which has its place there. But too often people bring their PowerPoint presentation that they give to their staff and they give it to the general audience of uh, whether it's, again, a luncheon or evening meeting. Another do, practice, practice, practice until you are so sick of your presentation, you want to scream. 
Believe me, once you get to a live audience, your adrenaline will run some. You have a little nervousness there, and it'll sound very fresh. And people are hearing it again for the first time, even though you have said it many, many times. You will be a lot more confident if you know your subject inside and out. Record your presentations. Hear how you sound. Now, you will sound different to yourself. We all know that. You won't sound like you think you do. But the reason that's good is that you will find yourself saying some tick words like, you know, you know, well, I don't know. And that's why you're here talking about this subject to me. I don't know, and I want to learn more. You get rid of those type of tick words, which I can do. I may have said you know in this presentation. I'm not aware of it, and I have a habit of doing that too. So those are some tips about making presentations and speeches. Next week, I'm going to talk about visualization techniques so you can really memorize your major points. November 17th is Robert Brown's birthday. Last week, he turned 95 years old. The reason I paid homage to Robert Brown last week and honored him is that one of his big shows that he was on back in the late 1960s, early 70s, the backdrop was Seattle, and it was called Here Come the Brides. And uh, I had the opportunity to meet him about a decade ago, and we actually struck up and developed a very close relationship. As a matter of fact, I had an extensive interview with Robert Brown about his life, and I posted it on YouTube about six years ago. And all you need to do is go to YouTube and input Robert Brown, and you'll come to the page. The title is Robert Brown, Paul Casey Interview. And I've gotten some good feedback on that, and over 23,000 people have viewed it so far. So I also asked last week if anybody wanted to wish Robert Brown a happy birthday or had any memories of the show, Here Come the Brides. And some people did answer, and here's what they had to say. Hi, uh, my name is Karen, and I live in Seattle, and I remember Here Come the Brides, watching it all the time. I remember the, um, the cast were all wonderful, and I think I had a crush on uh, one of them, the the younger guy, anyway, I think he was, a, uh, anyway, um, I, I remember the theme song. It was sung by Perry Como. I heard it just a little while ago on the radio, and the bluest skies are in Seattle, and I really enjoyed the show, and I want to wish you a really happy, happy birthday, Robert, and thank you for, for being on the show. Um, it was just, you helped make it thoroughly enjoyable, and many more. People are living a very long time these days. Many more birthdays and happy one today. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Wanted to wish Robert Brown a 95 birthday wish. Uh, my grandfather was born in November uh, 16th, and then my father died in November on his birthday, November 16th in 1994. So... Uh, it has different memories for me. Anyways, hope you make it to the 100-year club and uh, plus. And my best wishes to you. Tina Waisaki, thank you. 
There are two outs in the bottom of the ninth. Base is loaded. The Seattle Mariners trail the L.A. Dodgers by three runs in Game 7 of the World Series. Who would you rather see step up to the plate? Mitch Hanniger or a promising but yet untested player just called up from the minors? If Mitch Hanniger is your choice, that means experience is important to you. That's what Voices of Experience with Paul Casey is all about. People with experience in their chosen fields. Topics explored including public affairs, self-employment, travel, health and fitness, history, and adventure. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. Voices of Experience is simulcast on AM 880 KIXI and 1150 AM KKNW on Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Voices of Experience is also rebroadcast on Kixie Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. Well, it was, and when we started out, uh, we thought it was a very tough task, but we thought the tough part of it would be even to get nominated because we started out so far behind. But uh, I spent uh, more than a year campaigning pretty much full-time. And we built a, uh, something that was remarkable, I think, in this or private, any other state at that time at least. We ultimately had 14,000 active volunteers working for us in the, in the campaign. And that was just so much more than... Uh, anybody else had, especially the, the, the governor. The, the governor, uh, Governor Rosalini, had, uh, you know, he'd been governor for eight years. You build up a lot of uh, problems with some people. and Well, you know that, but you were able to win your third term, but that's a different yeah. story. But yeah, well, um, uh, the thing I thought about was that was a year before, a year before 1964, President Kennedy was assassinated. Yeah, and that was certainly a very tough time for the country, and I imagine at that point you had decided to run in '64, right? But we, the question I have is that: Did that influence you? Did you go, "Wow, this is going to be harder to win," or did that matter at all? We were already deeply into the campaign by November of '63, and uh, in fact, I'll never forget we were. I was uh, ready to go on the ferry to Bremerton for a luncheon as part of the campaign and then some, some afternoon activities uh, when we heard about the, uh, the shooting. And then, of course, Walter Cronkite finally came on and said, the president is dead. And with that, we canceled everything for that day. In fact, we canceled everything from then until the funeral. And... Uh, you know, I thought seriously about, you know, continuing the race. Because that was never was a doubt that you were going to continue based on that, the, the emotions of the time. Well, it was, you know, it was a, it was a, to lose a major political figure, just, we hadn't run across that, and uh, not by violence. And, uh, but we got started, and of course... Because we really started the campaign in June of 1963, which is the only way we could have won, was to start and have enough time to really get out and visit every community in the state several times. Certainly did that. Yeah. 
Your health uh, is excellent. You're 95 years old. Can you give me one of your major secrets as to how you have stayed so robust for so long? I don't know. Uh, you know, you never really know all of the things that happen or could happen, but I've been, you know, fairly active. Uh, tried to keep doing things. I, you know, I still like to hike and get up into uh, the natural areas of the state. I am sure that many of you recognize that voice. If you don't, it's the former governor and U.S. senator from the state of Washington, Daniel J. Evans. He just turned 95 years old in October. He is still going incredibly strong. And uh, I had the opportunity to talk with him about his life and talk to him about the future of this country and of our state. And that will be broadcast next week. So this is just a teaser of my conversation with, again, former Governor Dan Evans. I had this interview at the Columbia Tower Club thanks to the former publisher of the Puget Sound Business Journal, Mike Flynn. That's all the time we have for this edition to Voices of Experience. My thanks to Nick Brown, Judy Bentley, and Erica Schickel for sharing their wisdom and experience with us today. Voices of Experience is simulcast on KIXI AM 880 and KKNW AM 1150 on Wednesdays at 3 o'clock p.m. and then rebroadcast on Sundays on Kixie at 11 a.m. Any comments about what you heard today? You can call the Voices of Experience hotline at 425-653-1166. Please keep your comments short so I can get them on the air. That's 425-653-1166, 425-653-1166. Holiday Portraits 2021 at the Family Dog Training Center in Kent with Jerry and Lois Photography. So that's this weekend, November 26th through the 28th at 1509 Central Avenue South in Kent. You can get your portraits taken with your pets I've mentioned this before. I've seen their work. It is fabulous. Animals and humans are welcome for appointments starting at 8.45 a.m. Go to FamilyDogOnline.com. That's FamilyDogOnline.com. Now, if you're looking to make a career move, listen to Reigniting You with Lisa Downs every Monday afternoon at 3 o'clock p.m. right here on Kixie. She talks about mid to late career moves for those age 40 and over. She just wants you to focus on maybe staying in the traditional workforce, consider retiring, semi-retiring. She really helps you focus on that and get recharged. Again, that's Reigniting You with Lisa Downs, Mondays at 3 o'clock p.m. Happy Thanksgiving and go Cougs! Quote of the week, it can be stated emphatically, that there is no criminal class except for Congress. It's the National Benevolent Asylum for the Helpless. That's not me. That's Mark Twain. <laughs>